0: Picture the person you love most in this world. How much time would need to pass without you seeing or hearing from them before you'd report them missing? Think about this in a general sense, knowing there could be any number of factors at play. Now, what about if cell phones didn't exist? So they're not able to contact you as easily. They need to reach a payphone or a landline how much time would need to pass then. Okay, now take phones out of the equation entirely. While you're at it, remove letters too. Imagine that every time your loved one leaves you, you have no idea where they are or if they're alive, not until they walk back through the front door again. It could be weeks, months, years, it could be never. The point I'm getting at is, to begin to understand the disappearance of a seafaring explorer in the 17th century, we need to completely reframe our understanding of what it even means to disappear. I'm Sarah Turney, and this is Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Thursday, I'll examine a new missing person case ripped from history. I want to better understand the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. Today, I'd like you to meet an English explorer from the 1600s. If you look at a map of North America, you can easily spot his achievements thanks to three bodies of water named after him. But the man himself proves much harder to find. His name is Henry Hudson. New season out on Spotify soon. In the 17th century, there's a lot that can go wrong on the ocean. Maps are imprecise. Voyages take months. Sailors can fall ill. Crew members can turn on each other. Pirates can intercept. And even if the trip is going well... All it takes is one wave or a hidden iceberg to send a ship toppling. Believe it or not, during this so-called age of discovery, being a sailor's a pretty good gig. It's a steady paycheck and an opportunity to build a name for yourself at a time when class dictates almost every aspect of life. It won't lift you into an aristocratic life of luxury and comfort, but it can bring you fame and prestige. In the early 1600s, aristocrats are desperate for new trade routes between Europe and Asia. They want the quickest, most efficient ways to import and export goods. That way they can open new markets and become even wealthier than they already are. And there's a rumor going around about a shortcut that runs through Canada, a so-called Northwest Passage that connects the Atlantic to the Pacific. Nobody knows if it's real or not, but in 1610, there are two conglomerates that desperately want to find out. The Dutch East India Company and the English East India Company. Now, it's hard to overstate their influences. The Dutch East India Company is quite literally the largest in the world at a time when multinational corporations are a novelty. They basically have a monopoly on trade with the Dutch East Indies, which would be modern day Indonesia. And their English counterparts aren't too far behind. Rather than race each other to see who can find the Northwest Passage first, the two conglomerates decide to partner up. And after looking for the right explorer for the job, they pick Henry Hudson, an Englishman. Now Hudson's an interesting choice. He doesn't have the best track record, He's tried and failed to find new trade routes on three different voyages before, but he has plenty of experience as an explorer and a good reputation as a captain. He's crossed the North Atlantic and navigated Arctic waters before, which is useful. And even though he hasn't found any trade routes, he has always returned with his ship and his sailors intact. Plus, he's proven that he's pretty good at documenting new lands and waterways. Thanks to some of his recent trips, Europeans have a much better understanding of North American geography. So for better or worse, Hudson's the guy for the job. In the summer of 1610, he sets sail aboard his ship, named Discovery, with a boat full of supplies paid for by his wealthy benefactors. The journey starts out well. Hudson and his fellow sailors cross the Atlantic and arrive in northeastern Canada without a hitch. And in no time, they pass through a narrow body of water into what one crew member says looks like a spacious sea. For Hudson, this is a huge moment. Looking around, he thinks he's found an opening into the Pacific Ocean, meaning what could be the beginning of the fabled Northwest Passage. After his previous failures, he finally believes he's on the verge of success, or at least he hopes so. It would mean fame and fortune when he returns to England, a spot in history alongside the great European explorers that came before him, like Ferdinand Magellan and Sir Francis Drake. Unfortunately, the reality is Hudson's far from the Pacific, like really far. And he's even further from Asia, which is his intended destination. He's currently floating in a big inlet just west of Quebec, or what we refer to as Hudson Bay today. But for now, Hudson's at the helm, thinking he's right on track. Even if he's a little worried. And to be honest, he'd be foolish if he wasn't worried. It's already been a few months at sea, Hudson knows how short summers are in the Arctic. Once winter hits, the water around his ship will turn to ice, effectively trapping him and his crew in a frozen tundra. So he's faced with a choice. Turn back now while the weather conditions will allow him to safely sail home, or move forward knowing that eventually he and his crew will have to hunker down and wait out a brutal winter before resuming their voyage in the spring. As awful as it sounds, Hudson would prefer the second option. But before making any decisions, he gathers his crew to check if he has their support. For the most part, he does. There are a few sailors who want to turn back, but not enough to overturn the consensus. So Hudson's like, it's decided, we're staying the course. Thrilled that he doesn't have to go home empty-handed again, he starts to work out a few kinks. He needs to lead his crew to a place where they can safely spend the next few months, and he needs to avoid any icebergs along the way. Eventually, he decides to sail further south, so he and his crew can enjoy a fairly mild winter, which would be a good plan if it didn't rely on flawed logic. The prevailing belief at the time is, Places with similar latitudinal coordinates have similar temperatures, so he sails down to James Bay, off the north coast of modern-day Ontario, thinking the weather will feel just like home. It's roughly the same latitude as London, so it should work out, but it doesn't. What Hudson doesn't know is there's a reason for London's mild winters. The Gulf Stream pushes warm water and air across the Atlantic, from the Caribbean to Europe's western coast. Meanwhile, Canada's Arctic archipelago basically turns into a maelstrom of ice and wind. Hudson and his crew are stuck in temperatures that regularly drop below zero degrees Fahrenheit, meaning about 50 degrees colder than what they're used to. Hudson's ship has nothing to fight off this cold. They have food and supplies, but even in the best case scenario, they're going to be scraping the barrels. And even if they had the proper materials, which they don't, none of them know how to build a home in the middle of the Arctic. In his book about Hudson's final voyage, author Peter C. Mankall vividly captures how challenging it is for the crew to cope with the cold. He writes, Iron nails froze to the inside of cheeks when carpenters absently put them in their mouths while they were working. Detaching them opened bloody sores unlikely to heal quickly. Ice sheathed the interior walls of the best-built shelters. Clothes and shoes froze solid. Every moment could be painful. It gives me chills just thinking about it. Soon, the ship's gunner, the person in charge of artillery and ammunition, passes away from health complications. Several other crew members suffer injuries and illness, making them too weak to help out with daily tasks. And this causes a rift on board the discovery. Some men don't think it's fair that others who aren't pulling their weight are getting equal shares of food. By June 1611, tensions start to boil over and continuing on in the spring starts to feel impossible. For Hudson, it's almost too much to bear. The prospect of a fourth unsuccessful voyage literally drives him to tears. The crew, on the other hand, doesn't care about Hudson's ego. They're hungry, and there's only about two weeks worth of rations left on the ship. So in their minds, it's a no-brainer. As soon as the water thaws, they're heading home even if Hudson says to continue west. So after eight months, when the ice finally melts and Hudson announces his plan to continue on, his crew decides to mutiny. The efforts are reportedly led by two sailors named Henry Green and Robert Jewett. Jewett was once Hudson's first mate, but had recently been demoted. According to the Journal of the Ship's Navigator, a man named Abacuk Prickett, when he catches wind of the uprising, he implores the mutineers not to hurt Hudson. Everyone's an adult. They can use their words. And according to Prickett, the crew agrees. He writes, Henry Green took my Bible and swore that he would do no man harm. But after everyone agrees to stay calm, they lock Prickett below deck so he can't warn Hudson about the unrest, meaning Prickett doesn't have eyes on what happens next. Still, the men are apparently true to their word. All things considered, the mutiny is peaceful. Not a drop of blood gets spilled. The mutineers corner Hudson, his teenage son, and the seven other crew members that remain loyal to him. They then tie them up and lower them into a small boat. Once they're in the water, they toss down a musket, some pikes, some food, and an iron pot for cooking. Out of the goodness of their hearts, they want to give the men a fighting chance. After cutting the boat free, the discovery sails away. Just like that, one of the most trusted explorers of his era is left to fend for himself in Canada's Arctic archipelago. At least, that's the story the crew tells when they arrive back in England without their captain. Lack of information characterized life in the 17th century, and that's especially true for life at sea. The only information we have about what happened on board the discovery in 1611 comes from the ship's logs, which for the most part end at the mutiny, and from the surviving crew, the mutineers. As you can imagine, when they all arrive in England, there's some doubt about the version of events the sailors tell. Some suspect they didn't just abandon Hudson. They killed him. Now, no matter what happened, the sailors have some explaining to do. If convicted of murder, they'll be sentenced to death by hanging. But even if they're not, mutiny is in and of itself a crime. And so authorities open an investigation. They depose everyone who survived the voyage. And when giving testimony, the sailors add some details to their story. They claim Hudson apparently liked to play favorites, He kept a secret stash of food that he doled out to the sailors he liked most, which, if true, is pretty petty and messed up. It also gives motive for the mutiny. But more importantly, the sailors claim that the men who instigated the uprising, the real culprits, they're not around anymore. On their journey back to England, they had a run-in with some Inuit people, a group indigenous to Canada. They attacked their ship and killed the men who were actually responsible for the mutiny. Now, based on Prickett's records, it seems the group did get into a violent altercation with the Inuit. I'll spare you the gory details, but among those who died in the attack was Henry Green, the man who led the mutiny and installed himself as captain after giving Hudson the boot. Still, authorities are skeptical. It's an awfully convenient narrative. At the end of the day though, no one wavers from their story. And without anyone to contradict their claims, the investigation flounders to a halt. Nobody gets charged with mutiny or murder. But here's where I start to lose the thread of logic a little. Like what I can't understand is, why didn't the officials just go look for Hudson and his men? If the crew was telling the truth, they could all realistically be alive somewhere in Canada. They severed ties in June when it was warm. They supposedly had food, gear, and weapons. According to author Peter C. Mancall, Hudson was very adaptable to different climates. He could hunt and fish. He knew how to avoid scurvy and weather storms. He even knew how to trade with the indigenous American people and could communicate with them through signs. Now, the records are really scarce here, so it's hard to piece together exactly what happened. But as far as I can tell, the only person to suggest that someone go out and look for Hudson and the others is his wife, Catherine. Since the law has shown no interest, she begs his employer to send out a rescue expedition, but they basically tell her no it's not their problem. Hudson was meant to make money, and he didn't. He failed his mission. And just because his crew abandoned him doesn't mean they're going to shill out more cash to go find him. Now, Catherine's been a sailor's wife for years. I have to imagine she's used to sleepless nights. She's routinely gone without her husband for months on end, but these sleepless nights have to be different. This time she's not worrying about whether or not her husband and son are in danger. She knows they are, so she doesn't give up. She keeps on pushing. She puts up such a fight that the Dutch East India Company calls her a, quote, troublesome and impatient woman, which in my eyes is a badge of honor. I can't imagine the courage it takes for Catherine to stand up to such a massive money-making conglomerate especially in a century that had little to no regard for women who speak their mind. It's hard enough advocating for the missing in the 21st century. I can't fathom what it must have been like for Catherine, but in case you need a little inspiration today, her persistence pays off. The Dutch East India Company eventually gives in. I can't say why, but unfortunately, it may have been money that moved the needle. At a certain point, Catherine asks them for cash to compensate for the loss of her husband. And eventually they send a search party across the Atlantic. The only problem is by the time they do, it's been three years since Henry Hudson's crew set him loose. If he's alive, he could be anywhere in the world. So it's not a surprise when the expedition turns up nothing. but it's not the last voyage to go looking for Hudson. There's a renewed interest in the captain's disappearance when a Dutch geographer named Hessel Haritz shares his theory about what might've happened. Ironically, Haritz wasn't a fan of Hudson. He basically thought the captain had outsized ambitions and misguided assumptions, but that doesn't stop him from studying Hudson's pamphlets and logs. Eventually, he recreates Hudson's voyage step by step, drawing it out on a map. So when other explorers go out looking for the Northwest Passage themselves, they have a better sense of where to keep an eye out for clues as to what happened to Henry Hudson. This includes two men who were on board the discovery when the mutiny happened, one of whom I've mentioned a few times already. Abacuc Prickett, the ship's navigator, and he may have had an ulterior motive for his sudden interest in Hudson's fate. Six years after the discovery's expedition, the English court decides to reopen the old mutiny lawsuit. The timing may seem strange. There's no new evidence or information about the explorer's whereabouts, but when you look at the context around the case, you quickly find out it has nothing to do with Hudson. The trial surfaces a lot of drama, There's a big stink about a note found on the ship that could suggest some of the men wanted to mutiny from the start. The whole thing dissolves into this huge game of he said, he said, but none of it ultimately matters because nothing comes of it. In the end, the original verdict stands and the public moves on. It was all just theater a forum to publicly condemn mutinies and instill fear in pirates. In the years since Hudson's disappearance, there's been a noticeable surge in piracy, and the Crown's worried about all the money wealthy merchants are losing out on the ocean. The new trial was just a way to course correct anyone who might think, after the last one, England doesn't take these kinds of crimes seriously. Even though they hardly prove their point, And the worst part is, the trial basically ends up being the last time anyone with any influence looks into Hudson's disappearance. Catherine spends the rest of her life without her husband, without her son, without answers. Most people assume they died long ago, from the elements, from starvation, or from an attack, like the one that killed Henry Green. Nobody knows for sure, an investigation was never really opened in good faith, so it could never really be closed. But then, a century after his disappearance, a story surfaces that suggests an alternate ending, that maybe Henry Hudson lived a full life after all. A century after Henry Hudson's disappearance, there's no hope of finding him alive. But he'd be very happy to know he hasn't been forgotten. The waterways he mapped didn't lead him to a Northwest Passage. But the logs and charts that made it back to England without him prove incredibly useful to future explorers. And they make him famous. Famous enough that three bodies of water are eventually named in his honor the Hudson Bay, which I already mentioned, the Hudson Strait, which is up by Canada as well, and the Hudson River, which runs from Vermont all the way down to New York City. He's so famous that in the 1700s, when a Cree person tells an English historian about a man their ancestors took in a 100 years earlier, he immediately connects the story to Henry Hudson. It may be an old legend, but the timing is right and so is the location. Cree lands surround James Bay, the same place Hudson was stranded by his crew. Meaning, Henry Hudson and his companions may have found a new home living among the largest First Nations group in Canada. If True and the explorer did make inroads with the Cree, he would have been in very capable hands. The Cree had been skillfully living in that region for, well, we don't actually know how long, but we can safely say a very long time. Assuming Hudson and his fellow seamen could somehow communicate that they came in peace, they could have led a relatively pleasant life in Canada, or rather, as pleasant a life can be after you've been thrown off your own ship by the men you considered brothers and abandoned thousands of miles away from home. Now, it's important to note, the story comes from oral history, relayed through many different generations. If you've ever played a game of telephone, you know how easily a message can get distorted over time. But the account is important regardless, simply because it's essentially the only evidence we have of what could have happened to Henry Hudson. And that remains true for the next 250 years. Then in 1959, more than three centuries after Hudson's disappearance, some road workers in Ontario, Canada, stumble upon an unusual stone while repaving Highway 17. It's small, but it looks like it has an inscription carved into its face. When they clean it off, it reads, HH, Captive 1612. Soon, the stone finds its way into the hands of some scholars, and they're very intrigued. This could be a message from Henry Hudson himself. HH are his initials. 1612 is the year of the mutiny. That much is easy to confirm. So what stands out is the words in between? Captive. By now, Hudson has become one of history's most famous missing persons. And this could be a message from the explorer himself. Maybe he was taken in by the Cree or another indigenous group, but not in the way he might've hoped. Maybe they took him captive and he carved the rock as a clue in case anyone came looking for him. Based on the tense relations between indigenous people and Europeans at the time, this theory has legs. But here's the catch. The rocks discovered by the Chalk River in the upper Ottawa Valley a waterway that's hundreds of miles away from James Bay, Hudson's last known location. It would have been difficult for Hudson to make that trip, but not impossible. Knowing that they had a small boat and some supplies, historians speculate that Hudson and his men could have traveled from James Bay into the adjacent Harricana River, which is roughly 350 miles long. If the conditions were right, they could have made it all the way to where the stone was found. But if that was the case, they probably didn't run into the Cree people. More than likely, they would have encountered the Algonquin, which is interesting because way back when, the French navigator Samuel de Champlain was making his way through the region when he heard a rumor that some Algonquin had enslaved a British youth. And if that's true, it's possible that the British youth was actually Henry Hudson's son. Now, when Champlain was in the Ottawa Valley, it was 1613, meaning one year after the date was carved into the stone. As far as I could tell, he didn't hear any mention of any other Englishmen in the area, captured or otherwise. This could mean Hudson and the other men died before Champlain arrived, or it could mean that the British youth had no relation to the 1612 mutiny. There's really no way for us to know unless maybe their remains are one day found in the valley. But in such an expansive area with so little to go on, finding those remains would be like finding a needle in a haystack. It's an almost impossible task. And at this point, archeologists haven't officially confirmed the age of the inscription on the HH rock, much less its connection to Hudson. So where does that leave us? Well, with about as many answers as we had back in the 1600s. From where I sit in the 21st century, the search for Hudson in his day feels incredibly lackluster and frustrating. And as I say that, my natural knee-jerk reaction is to wonder, am I putting unreasonable expectations on a time period that I can't possibly understand? Maybe I am. Technology was different, capabilities were different. The risks of search efforts were different. I started this episode by saying the very nature of what it meant to disappear was different. That's all true. But at the end of the day, I'm walking away feeling like when it comes to missing person cases, there are more parallels between Henry Hudson's story and modern disappearances than there are differences. I mean, think about it a person disappears in a time where people go missing all the time. It feels like the suspects are hiding something. The investigation is underwhelming. His loved ones have to fight for justice. Corporations and governments seem to value their own self-interest over people. And the only things that seem to make a difference are money and fame. The most dedicated, enthusiastic research into Hudson's disappearance only happened centuries after he went missing. Once history decided he was important, that his contributions to society were enough. And listen, I know so many people went missing in the 17th century. Percentage-wise, I have to imagine it was more than today, the majority of whom didn't get a fraction of the attention that Henry Hudson's case received. But that's kind of my point. The idea that one life can inherently be more valuable than another, the spectrum of which cases do and don't receive attention, that hasn't gone away. I mean, the only reason we're able to speak about Henry Hudson's disappearance today is because we have so much information. There are so many other missing people that didn't and don't have that luxury. Today, we're lucky to have more laws and systems in place that ensure more equity, but significant gaps still exist along gender, race, and socioeconomic lines. And we now have the data to prove it. And yet so often we're told that the reason certain cases receive more resources than others is because there just aren't enough resources to go around. Meanwhile, the three wealthiest individuals in the United States have roughly the same combined net worth as the poorest half of all Americans, which would include more than 160 million people. Now, I always try to operate from a place of hope because I truly believe that change is possible and change is happening. But the truth is, our technology has far outpaced if not our empathy, our advocacy. So rather than sit back and appreciate how far we've come, I instead want to draw attention to how far we haven't. I wanna challenge you to engage with disappearances outside of this podcast and to dive beyond the ones that make headlines. Because we can make a difference, especially if there are more people willing to fight like Katherine Hudson. Next episode. In 1977, Megumi Yogata disappears from the shores of Nikata, Japan after an evening badminton practice, and she's thrown into a complex web of espionage and geopolitics. Thank you for listening. In the time it took you to listen to this episode, 30 people disappeared in the United States alone. If you or someone you know needs assistance with a missing persons case, please visit seasonofjustice.org. Season of Justice is a nonprofit organization that provides funding to law enforcement agencies and families to help solve cold cases. For full disclosure, I am a member of the board. It's a great resource for both law enforcement and families in order to bring closure to those impacted by unsolved violent crime. You can find all episodes of Disappearances and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. Disappearances stars Sarah Turney and is a Spotify original from ParCast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Alex Button, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Disappearances was written by Ben Hanani, with writing assistance by Nora Battelle and Connor Sampson fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Mickey Taylor. To hear more stories hosted by me, check out my other podcast, Voices for Justice.